Uh, welcome to Your Property Podcast, uh, the, the podcast for all things property related. If you're interested in making money out of property, if you're a property investor or developer at the moment or just starting out, then this is the podcast for you. Uh, I'm Ant Lyons and I have my co-host once again quite <laughs> early this morning so very uh, early it's currently 10 past eight in the morning 10 past eight is like midday i've nearly, I nearly finished work for the day now so i only woke up an hour ago and uh, millennials <laughs> okay so um shameless plug to start uh if you are interested in learning how to make money in property if you want to find uh out more about how to do it, who's doing it, what they're doing, then go to yourpropertynetwork.co.uk and grab a free copy of our, our magazine. So shameless plug over. So in this uh, podcast episode, we're talking about uh, quitting the day job, um, leaving employment and going full-time in, in property. And I was thinking uh, earlier on this morning, the different types of people that I've done interviews with since we've been doing this, because we've been running the magazine for 10 years, I've probably interviewed 500 people and they have included uh doctors scientists um builders plumbers uh military personnel a a royal marine sniper a pretty much uh, i know that's cool i want to get on the wrong end of him do you know what he's just he was such a cool guy he didn't even mention it really sort of mentioned at the end that that's what he did and and, and so really you know pretty much anyone from any background who has taken a plunge, moved from the, the uh, in inverted commas, the, the safety net of a, a career, of a job, um, into going it alone. And uh, on today's episode, I'm really pleased actually to have someone on here that I follow for quite a long time on, on social media. I, I watch what he does. I think he speaks uh, the truth uh, about what it's really like to be in property. Um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there sometimes so we're gonna we're gonna hear what it's really like to go from a serious job or a very serious job into uh full-time property so very long introduction welcome to the podcast rob stewart that was a long introduction um and a very good morning <laughs> early morning as it is um and uh, great to be here guys thank you thank you um so let's let's jump in straight away rob and say life pre-property for you it, it was quite a a serious, a proper job, a proper career. Yeah, I think I think some people um, who I've worked with over the years might disagree with that. As an air defender in the air force, um, but yeah, I spent twelve years in um, in the air force flying things, basically. Um, so uh, I was an air defender based up in Scotland, doing sort of quick reaction alerts um, with anti hijack stuff, anti Russian stuff. Spent a good time amount uh, amount of time in the Falklands as well, doing um, doing stuff down there. So a little bit of a change coming out into um, into the Sydney street uh, about six years ago now. So, I mean, you know, proper job, proper career. It also sounds amazing, you know, may well be up there for the coolest person that we've interviewed so far. Top Gun, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'll take that, thanks. Yeah, who wouldn't, you know. Uh, so, um, but you haven't got your radiators on today, but never mind. You know? <laughs> I'm sure they're there. Too early, it's dark outside. <laughs> yeah. um, so, what was life like back then? You know, tell us a little bit, paint us a, a picture of, you know, life in the military for you I imagine it's a fairly structured environment yeah very structured I think um, uh, something that, that I talk to a lot of people about these days is 
um, you know, sort of having that, that um, those days mapped out for you, you know, as you say, you, you kind of know what you're doing on a daily basis. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's rules, there's regulations. Um, you, you don't really have your own, your own thoughts, your own voice, your own, um, you know, ability to just take control of your day. It's very much imposed on you, but that's fine. That's how the military works. That's how the structure of the military works and the military wouldn't work, uh, wouldn't work without that. But, um, on the flip side, actually, if I'm honest, we, we had, um, uh, sort of big picture flexibility in that we sort of traveled around the world quite a lot doing, doing various bits and bobs, um, in, in the military. Um, and if I'm honest, it was, uh, you know, quite a, quite a blessed existence because, um, uh, we, we got to do some amazing things, um, you know, fly some, fly some amazing planes and, yeah, you know, it's a lot of responsibility, but what we were very much taught in the military as a, uh, as a fast jet pilot was to do things by ourselves. Okay. So that's, that's one of the biggest challenges that I had leaving the military was going from an environment where really, um, you're kind of doing everything by yourself to then having to come and work into teams which you know even though a lot of entrepreneurs are solopreneurs i guess especially in property you're still working in teams the whole time and that's quite a big transition uh, quite a big change to have to make mindset wise about how to actually integrate into a team and work within a team you know be it, be it builders or professionals or investors and that's probably one of the big challenges we had leaving okay so how did you what made you make this decision to kind of step away from that um you know was there always the drive to do something yourself or or did something happen which made you think you know what i want to get out of this yeah the honest answer is um i, I ended up in south africa uh flying for the south african air force on exchange and uh, when i went out there and that was all oh, 20 2010 so sort of um eight years ago eight and a half years ago now when i went out there i kind of left left my um left my RAF job, left my family, left my um, girlfriend at the time, now my wife Sally, um, and ended up in the middle of uh, northern South Africa near the Zimbabwe border um, in a place called Louis Trickard, which was um, an interesting place as an Englishman to be, um, and decided I didn't want to do three years out there. And when I spoke to the RAF and said, uh, this kind of is not exactly what I thought it was going to be, um, and I'd like to come back to the UK, they said, after a lot of to and froing, I said, you can do that, but you're not going to fly again. If you if you if you do that basically, or it's unlikely you'll fly again. So um, I kind of thought there's there's not a lot of point being in the RAF as a pilot without an airplane to fly. So it was time to time to leave at that point. Okay, so was it when when you? So, uh, let me get my brain in gear a second. When you made the decision to leave, did you sort of have a set strategy on like how you were going to do uh, move forward, or was it just um, a, a leap of faith? It was a total, yeah, it's a total leap of faith. And, and this is an interesting, um, I think an interesting concept about how, how everybody, um, how you sort of plan out where you're going needs to be about what's making you happy at the time. I think uh, we, we talk a lot in business about, you know, one year plans, three year plans, five year plans. Um, certainly in the world of, of, of entrepreneurism or property making money, it's about, right, how do we accumulate portfolio income, etc. But back then, um, before I sort of got into the world of business, um, it was about right doing what makes you happy, doing what your sort of gut tells you and what you feel connected to. And there's been a couple of moments in my life where, where I've had to do that. And actually, when I joined the RAF in the first place, that was, um, I joined the RAF after I dropped out of university because at that point, it wasn't what I wanted to do. 
Um, and so I wanted to uh, you know, do something very different. I wanted to do what made me happy and what I felt connected to. So left, um, left university, joined the Air Force, and then did the same. Left the Air Force to, um, to, to really just reconnect with family and life and, and get some control back in my life. And, and actually, the plan was always to go and fly for the airlines. So, so I got my, my airline licenses, my commercial flying licenses, spent, um, spent a lot of money <laughs> doing that um, and, uh, and, and getting those. And then I ended up leaving the Air Force kind of in the, in the depths of, you know, the worst recession that we've seen in our generation. And so there, there just were no, there were no slots. There were no seats to go and, go and fly with anybody who could kind of pay, pay me anything near what I needed to, to sort of live a life. Um, uh, and so I kind of, uh, I actually went and contracted for a year to a defense company um, just, to, just to pay the bills. So I was looking for a job in the airlines. Um, and and uh, as I was leaving the Air Force, I started buying properties, really just as a pension replacement, because I was le- losing, my, um, losing my RAF pension or not being able to draw my RAF pension until, until I'm 55 rather than 38, which a lot of guys can do um, when they leave, because I left earlier, I, I, I lost that. Um, so I really just started replacing the pension. There was absolutely no plan um, at that point um, in the slightest, but started accumulating single-let properties. Okay, and so at which point is there a tipping point where you thought, actually, do you know what, this is... I can make this something bigger than just, you know, a, a bankable pension in 20 years time or whatever. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you exactly what the tipping point was, actually. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to this. So, so when I was doing this contracting job, and effectively what I was doing is working for a, a private company who were contracted to the military to write their new flying training system. Um, and it was a very interesting setup as a private finance initiative that the MOD um, had, had entered into. And effectively, I was working with um, a load of people who'd never flown an airplane before, never been near the military before, but were writing um, the courses to tell pilots how to learn to fly. Um, And they were doing this for a couple of years. And after a couple of years, they realized we actually need a pilot to come and help us with this. Funny old thing. (laughs) (laughs) Funny it took them a couple of years for them to twig that. (laughs) And I'm sure nobody will be listening, but... (laughs) They wrote the entire syllabus and they gave it to the RF and the RF said, um, we have no idea what to do with this because it's not teaching pilots how to fly. Basically, they just employed um, trainers to write courseware, but who had never flown an airplane before. Of course, that's that's never going to work. Right. So they, they put a job spec out for somebody who had um, a glass. So uh, basically a modern Hawk, which is an airplane, modern Hawk air defense um, experience. But it was now in the, in the in the civilian world. And I was the only person in the world who matched that job description um, at the time. So, so it was an easy job interview, actually. Niche, niche sector. <laughs> very niche, right? It's very, but um, I, I was living in, in Chester, well, I still live, live in Chester. And I was commuting to Anglesey every day, which is where the RAF base was. So it was an hour and a half drive each way. Um, and I was leaving about sort of five o'clock in the morning. We had to sort of be there about half seven. Um, and uh, not seeing, you know, Sally. And then uh, every... Uh, every week, every couple of weeks, got trained down to Bristol and had to do a couple of days in Bristol, which is where the headquarters was. And I remember vividly one of those days going down to Bristol and we you know, put up in a hotel on the Monday night. And I remember after um, somebody who was telling me how to uh, how I should write courseware to fly an aeroplane who had never um, uh, uh, flown an aeroplane before. I remember going back to the hotel and screaming in the mirror um, and going, you know, what is what just what is going on here? Um, this is not what my life should be about. And that was the tipping point. I'm like, right, I now need to leave, um, leave a job where somebody else is pulling the strings and really go it alone. Okay, and, um, but at this point you haven't got a, a, there's no plan to replace the income. 
No, so so at the point, I, I think um, at that point, I had about four single lets and one HMO. Um, so it was just the, the income from that was just about covering my own personal mortgage. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as a consultant with a private defense company, I was earning pretty, pretty good money. Um, and what I've been doing is um, actually reinvesting that into some more deposits because it was in a limited company. Um, I was just taking that, putting it into more deposits for single lets and refurb. But yeah, at the time I had barely enough coming in to cover my own mortgage. So stepping away from it was a, was a huge leap of faith, but I knew that I couldn't be working for somebody else. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I couldn't be working for somebody else. So how, how did it? you move on your property education? Did you sort of find a course? Did you Google or did you sort of just carry on doing what you were doing? No, I, I went down the really tried and tested route of absolutely messing it up by myself for about a year. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> solid way to start. <laughs> solid way to start. So actually, um, uh, you know, uh, what, what happened is when I, when I left, I had, I had kind of just a, enough to scrape together to buy my first little commercial conversion. And it's, you know, you say commercial conversion, it sounds really grand, doesn't it? It was, um, it was a little photographic studio in the middle of a, um, a, a North Welsh town which we bought for, I bought for about, I think it was 48,000 pounds and got planning to get three flats on it. And everybody's like, you'll never get planning for that. But we got planning on it um, for, for three flats. And then I brought, uh, I brought a builder in um, who had no idea what he was doing, basically um, uh, charmed his way into my life and uh, into doing this job with no particular contracts or anything like that. And I was so green at the time, I had no idea what I was doing. I just was so excited, I got planning. And, and basically it all went terribly wrong. Um, and uh, he he took me for about thirty forty thousand pounds, which was I had to go and effectively go cap in hand to family to get out of that hole and finish the job off. And he he basically ran away about two thirds of the way into the job when he was forty grand over budget and um, building. I tried to um, get building regs to sign it off to get a mortgage on it, and they came up with thirty points of non-compliance. Um, so it was kind of the first emotional trauma in in property. And, and after that point, I thought, you know what, I probably need to actually learn how to do this properly at this, at this stage. It, it, it must have been quite uh, tempting to a lot of people rather would have at that point given up. You know, yeah, absolutely. Rooms, I think I, I would have got uh, my fingers have been burned. This is not going to work out. People are just out for out to get me. So hmm. how did you overcome that? Well, so so. Actually, exactly that happened. Um, and uh, I don't think I've ever sort of said this before, actually, but I went back to work Ooh, for, for a few months. Yeah, no, no, I went, <laughs> I actually went back to the job I'd left. Um, and I thought, yeah, this, this is, everybody's out to get you. And after you've been in the military, and this is one of the massive learning points from leaving the military, is um, when you're working in the military, everybody you work with, you implicitly trust. And, and that you, you have to, right, especially when you're, you're flying, the guys who are in the back seat or, you know, sitting on the wing or anything like that, they not literally sitting on the wing. I mean, like a wingman <laughs> for, for an airplane. Um, uh, you, you kind of have to trust them with your life and you trust them implicitly that everybody's going to do exactly what their job is at the right time to the very best of their ability. So coming into civilian world and, and realizing that that's not quite the ethos that most people have um, mm. in, in business. And actually there are a lot of, most people are, are out there for themselves, um, you know, not, not the necessarily malicious, but they're prioritizing themselves. Um, uh, I was putting my trust in a lot of people and it was, it was unearned trust and that, that did sting me. So yeah, I went back to work for a bit and three months later realized why I'd left in the first place and then left again. Um, <laughs> to uh, go back into uh, into into learning learning the lessons basically but but you know there's there's also an important lesson there that actually we do need to pay the bills so you know you've you've, you've been taking for a lot of money i'm guessing that part of the motivation there was i actually need to go make some money 
pretty quick. Um, I remember years ago, I worked for this guy, and he's a serial entrepreneur in publishing and multi-millionaire. And he, um, before he did that, he was the keyboard player for Bross um, <laughs> years ago. I, I know, like weird. And then he set up various sort of magazines and publishing enterprises. And he said, you know, we had so little money. I was going back out on the road to, to play the keyboards to make enough money to push into the business to get it over another week. And there's, I think there's a sort of a, a valuable lesson there that actually, you know, you do what you have to do to, to keep going, I guess. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and um, I, I think what a lot of people forget about in property when they get started is if you're building a portfolio, it's a very capital hungry exercise. Even if you're, you know, buying cheap and you're adding value and refinancing, there's still a time period that that takes to get to get money back out. Um, uh, you know, I think definitely in, in, in today's world, I mean, this was when I started, it was what, uh, 2011. And I could literally go into an estate agent and buy, you know, a whole wall full of repossessions at sort of 35 grand that were probably worth 60 or thousand pounds. You just you can't do that anymore. We're in a totally different market. Um, but yeah, cash flow, cash flow is, I think, the one thing that people fail to understand in any business, especially a property business. And at that point, I depleted savings. So that was all my savings gone. Um, had to go out and get some, get some more cash just to pay the bills. Um, uh, still hated it and therefore went, went back in. But when I went back in um, into property, I was still trying to buy stuff. But then, then I started some trading elements as well to cover, um, to cover that cash flow. And, and it, it's really important, I think, to have a cash flow strategy, i.e. a trading strategy, and a investment or a wealth building strategy at the same time. Those who try just to go straight into wealth, unless they've got huge amounts of funds and resources to start with, just go into wealth building and, and capital growing, you're going to run out of cash at some point. And that becomes a nasty position to be in, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, about how I did it a, a second time <laughs> in, in the future. But yeah, so I started, I started sourcing HMOs, actually, um, uh, at that point to, to military guys. And, and that created the cash flow to actually start, start growing the business by going out and buying um, uh, three, four bed Victorian terraces, turning them into five, six bed HMOs in, in the area that I was investing in at the time and charging sourcing fees for that. So what, what do you think people ignore the cash flow? Because to me, it's like the, the absolute most obvious bit. You know, we, we, we've got to pay the bills, you know, either in the business or you know, personally. And, and we have a responsibility, you know, we've got a mortgage or, you know, rent to pay or whatever. We've got to pay um, to run a car, all that kind of stuff. There's a cash requirement on us, on our lives, on a day by day or month by month basis. So why do people overlook that? Um, do you know what? That's a, it's a great question. And I, I think it's just, it's, it's something that people have to learn. And a lot of people learn it the hard way. And that financial literacy is so important. I think in property, a lot of people um, will get chunks of money, JV finance, or um, you know, they've got savings. And therefore, they're not seeing on a day-to-day -day that, that cash flow situation. They go, okay, cool. Somebody's lent me you know, a couple hundred grand. Fine. Life's, life's good. Let's go and invest it. But fail to see that, that in and out into the business. I, I don't think it's just in property. I think it's any business. You know, how many business owners do you see who actually fundamentally don't understand their cash flow situation? And, you know, especially in a trading business, right, it's, it's super important. As we all know, you can be hugely profitable but go bankrupt for cash flow issues. Um, and I, I, I think it's, it's not taught. I, I don't think cash flow and, and your life cash flow is really taught anywhere. I don't think anybody really makes it, makes it that obvious. Um, about it's weird, it. isn't it? One of my sort of biggest rants, and I will only touch upon it today, is that we, there's three things which we don't learn at school, which I think we really, really should. 
the first one is obviously sort of money management and you know i think that's important but i do think it's, it's actually superseded by the two others one is we don't learn how to cook you know no one learns how to actually make any decent food that's even relatively healthy or just tasty and the other thing we don't learn is first aid we don't learn to save another human being's life we need i learned crop rotation in in history in uh you know in my secondary school speak for yourself i had cooking lessons (laughs) we did a we did did whatever it was called at the time but it was pretty rubbish wasn't it but um you know didn't learn anything about nutrition or Mm. anyway no no Oh, I like a sausage roll and a scone. So it might be right on that. That's a whole other topic, isn't it? Nutrition <laughs> and, and your health with, with, with wealth. And, and I think that's a really, as you say, it's a really important thing that people just fail to, um, fail to grip and understand. But super important. So, um, so, so you start, I've gone off piece again, you know, we always do. But, I'm thinking so, sausage rolls now at this time in the morning. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> it's too oh. early for sausage rolls. <laughs> Never too early for sausage rolls. Breakfast time. Yes. <laughs> um, so you know, you're, you're, you're sourcing for other people and um, there's other people who do that and there's a lot of people who don't do a particularly great job of it. So how did you want to sort of differentiate your offering um, to say, do you know what, these are you know, genuinely good, good projects. And, and the other bit I always think about sourcing that's interesting is that sometimes when people purchase through somebody that's um, sourcing a property is, they almost sort of abdicate any responsibility on the financial transaction because they say it's up to you. So as soon as there's one room empty or whatever, that's your fault. Did you, did you experience any of that at all? Yeah, I think without a doubt, there were you know, teething problems with any business that scales when you don't. And this was before I'd done any education, by the way. So this was, this was probably 2011, uh, 20, no, 2012, I think I sourced my first property. Um, so before I even knew it was a strategy or, or anything like that. And um, I differentiate myself really by, by, by only speaking to military guys or so sourcing for military guys because they just saw what I was doing, following what I was doing and, and, and saw, um, uh, you know, the sort of cash flow that HMOs were, were creating. Um, I, I, I did the whole, I kind of differentiate myself by doing that, a turnkey service. I know it's probably quite cliche now and a lot of people do it, but to, um, to buy, to, to renovate and then to manage the tenancies afterwards um there probably wasn't uh, you know there's less people doing it doing it back then so so it really was a totally hands you know sort of totally hands-free um thing for the guys of course there were there were issues and um the probably the biggest issues that i found is as we were scaling it and we were getting to sort of decent volume um at what at one point um the choke point became the build teams actually um and what what happened was the quality of the builds were starting to go down um, I was, I was probably delegating slash abdicating, you know, to my builder, um, more of the project management of it all while he was bringing on more people into his team to do it. And of course then, um, you know, some of the investors started noticing this. Um, and there was one particular case, uh, that I remember quite clearly. And actually we this wasn't an HMO. This is actually a below market value one. It's also a fantastic property. Uh, the, the builder come and done a three, a three grand refurb. Um, and then the clients had come in and gone, right, this just isn't up to, up to standard. Actually, there was probably an expectation issue with the client anyway, but we'd, we'd already sourced a tenant um, to, to come in. But he, uh, he then didn't let the builder back in. The builder said, I'll come and rectify the issues uh, at no cost because he said, it was my lads have not done a great job, we'll do it at no cost. The client said, no, don't trust you guys anymore. And he brought another builder in who charged him 10 grand to rectify the uh, three grand's worth of work. 
um, which was, um, you know, which was, which was hard to take at the time, actually, because uh, I think when things go wrong, you go in and try and fix them as, to the best of your ability. But if you're not allowed to do that, it can be frustrating. But yeah, that was a good lesson in, in scaling a business, actually, and how it, you don't want to scale too quickly because everybody thinks it's all about growth. Actually, it's not about growth. It's about sustainable growth. And you were stuck in the middle in that bit as well, I guess, weren't you? You know, you're just getting all the all the volume from both sides and, um, and, 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 and with no ability to kind of actually rectify the problem. But, yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually, I actually got letters from solicitors um, from from the clients um, saying we suspect you're making secret profits from the builders and etc. It was it was it was quite an interesting experience actually. Um, and, but yeah, it was very much in between the two. And in the end, we just you know we just we just had it out and parted ways. And um, you know, he's gone his other way. And it's it's by the way, it's a fantastic property because I offered to buy it off him after all of this. Because uh, like, do you know what? If you're not happy, I'll just buy it off you. Because it was still even with all of that, it was still a great buy. And he's like, no, actually, we'll just I'll just hold on to it. Um, after he got it revalued by an estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> so from um, sourcing for, for, for other people, you know, making that very, very necessary cash flow, how has your property business kind of evolved and what sort of shape and size is it, does it look like now? What do you, what do, you do now? Yeah, so um, when we started sourcing, buying quite a lot of HMOs, we needed uh, a management function. Uh, because we couldn't find anybody to manage HMOs in, in the area. So, so I started a, a, a letting, a, I'm not going to say letting agency, it's a management agency for, 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 for HMOs. Um, and that, that's been through a few, a few iterations. But I, I kind of um, stopped sourcing 2014, because in our area, the HMO market hit a, um, hit a saturation, mark, um, saturation point, And the occupancy actually just fell off a cliff for a little bit. Uh, so I, I, I switched strategy, stopped sourcing for clients, because... Unlike um, uh, some things I've seen in industry, um, I, I think with that big picture view, I don't want to keep sourcing for people if I know I'm going to struggle to fill them for people because that's just creating a rod for my own back. Um, so, so I switched to kind of small block of flat developments um, and started with uh, buying things that were already in flats but needed TLC, they needed refurb. So the first one was where my office is now, actually, which bought at auction, seven flats and um, two retail units, but, but below. And started working quite closely to council to bring these units back into life. Um, and we get, uh, we get a fair amount of, um, of grant money from our local council to bring empty properties back in. So an empty in our, in our area, and it varies council to council, is anything that's been empty for two years or more. So we get a decent amount of grant money, bring them back, um, and then have nominated the council have nominated rights to put to put their tenants in um, after that. So so started started on that strategy. And that is actually a fantastic fantastic strategy. Um, and, and now I kind of focus on mixed use developments, generally with commercial on the bottom um, and flats uh, flats on top. And the reason I've gone for mixed use is nobody seems to want to buy them. Um, and I, I think a lot of people struggle with the commercial element. Uh, on the bottom floor but if you know what you're doing actually commercial is a fantastic fantastic strategy very low it's obviously lower yield but very low risk um and we're doing at the moment a um uh we bought a uh well working man's club in a place called Ellsmere Pork's doing 13 flats and 5,000 square foot of retail beneath it at the moment that's our current project um current project that we're on which is fantastic because we'll then um we're, we're in negotiations to lease the whole lot um, or all the flats to the council. We've pre-sold one of the retail units to um, uh, to a blue chip convenience store. So we're just looking for a tenant for the second retail unit, and that's looking like a, a great deal at the moment. I think you're right. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of us understand residential 
uh, investment, um, but can't get our heads around the commercial element. I know it's a bit of a, a sort of unknown uh, entity for me. We, we're looking at development um, in Bristol at the moment where it's uh, nine flats above and a commercial unit below. And I'm thinking, well, I have no idea what that's worth uh, or, you know, how that works. And the agent tells you something you think, really? I don't even know if that's true. I don't know that well. I just don't know it. So, um, yeah, maybe there should be a little bit more about that kind of inf information out there about how, how that's well, maybe that's a, an opportunity for us to look at. But yeah, um, absolutely. And, and and really, it's 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 pretty simple. It's, it it is a bit subjective with the with the commercial stuff. And you'll probably speak to two or three surveyors, and you'll get different um, you know <laughs> yield valuations in in the same area, uh, depending who you're speaking to. And that's why it's good to develop that team of people. Um, that, that you know, you know, and not just your own team, but getting to know the people who work for the banks, you know, who's on who's surveying, you know, who's on whose panels for, uh, you know, for valuations, because that can make or break a deal, you know, get the wrong surveyor in, the wrong valuation on the building, and, and you're stuck in it, whereas get the right one, and you get a fantastic valuation on it. So, so you know, one of the big things that's helped grow the, grow the business over the last couple of years is, is developing that network that really knows the area very well. Um, and is really sort of niched into our area, um, both with our team and um, and the banks and the banks teams. And in terms of uh, sort of connecting to other people and creating a network, um, obviously you've got your like kind of professionals, you've got your finance guys, you've got the agents, you've got the architects, QSs, all those kind of people that operate within a project. But I know your your kind of network extends beyond that as well, and you're you can you sort of connected with some. Some people who are, you know, I think are amazing in properties and really, really good guys. Um, how important and, and in what way has there um, has it been um, surrounding yourself with other people who are kind of like minded and have similar values, aims and ambitions? Yeah, ma massive. It's absolutely huge to have. Um, well, I mean, on, on, on multiple levels, right? So you've got your, your sort of peer group that you want to be surrounding yourself with, because as, as you know, a lot of people know, it can be quite lonely, especially in the property world when, you know, it's not you're not going into an office with, with lots of people. You know, I'm sitting here at, at home in my home office right now. And um, as much as my, I love my kids, um, it's not quite the same uh, peer group and accountability group as, as having that, that, that like-minded people. So that's super important. But it's also super important to, to build your own brand, um, you know, for investors, for, um, you know, deals that come in. Even, you know, even working with things like the banks, you know, the banks will be there checking you out on social media these days before they, you know, before they lend to you. Um, when you're working with your builder, you know, when, you, when you're sort of using, um, you know, higher quality builders, they'll be checking you out to make sure they want to work with you. You've got to sell yourself on, you know, to them, not the other way around, uh, in my experience. And when you do that, all of a sudden um, opportunities arise. If people, um, if people know, like and trust you when you've got that brand and that positioning, that's where the opportunity really comes from. You know, I know a lot of people are out there and I hear it on the forums all the time. It's like there's no deals out there or I can't find anything or I can't work with these people. And a lot of the time, if you grow your brand, things start magnetizing to you. And that's obviously what I kind of do in, in my other business, um, which is the, um, uh, the sort of social media marketing training side of, side of things, help people build that brand. Okay. And um, I guess if anybody was in the situation that you were in, um, when you were in the military, even if you did, you know, in any day job, any well-paid job where... You know, I, I do the school runs sometimes. So I know a lot of the parents at school and I know um, a lot of the dads in particular, but some of the mums as well. They're in well-paid careers, um, very corporate environments, 
kind of at director level of, 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 of a lot of companies and they hate it. I think is probably the, the most succinct way of putting it. They are looking for a way out. They want to engineer an exit. Most of them are just hoping that they can made redundant and then they get paid a big payout and they don't have to work for a year and then they'll figure something out later yeah. on. But they're too, they're too, um, you're in a position where, you know, you need that income. You know, you know what it's like, you know, as you earn more, you spend more. And so you get to a point where actually trying to curtail that back, if you've got a family and stuff like that, it would be really difficult. So for people who are in that position, no matter where that is on the sort of financial scale, <clears throat> would you recommend that they did what you did? Jump first and figure out, build the parachute on the way down? Or would you suggest that they try and engineer an exit over, over a period of time? And, and what would that look like reflecting on your experience? Yes, it, do you know what? It's such a tough question. Um, I think if you'd asked me two years ago, I'd have said just jump um, and uh, just, you know, pull that sticky plaster off and, and work it out. Um, I think as I get, get a bit older, probably get a little bit more, um, uh, less risk, um, less risk averse, or more risk averse, less, less risky. And uh, I, I would say, honestly, engineer something out, you know, um, especially if you are in, uh, if you're in a good, well paying job. Um, you can start, you know, diverting funds into building that that parachute for you or constructing that parachute for you, because there is a lot of risk, right, in in chucking everything in. Um, you know, for a start, you become unmortgageable, you know, very quickly. How do you how do you, how do you carry on growing your portfolio when when you've got no job and and no income? Um, things do go wrong. I, I, you know, we live in an industry where it's all about positivity, and everyone's like, you know, just be positive and turn you know, every negative into a positive and that's fine. Right. But negatives still do happen. Mm. And issues happen. And I don't care how good you are. You get on developments or you get on properties and things go wrong and you lose money. Um, I've, I've a couple of years ago, we went into um, a grade two listed development, which went massively over budget and over time and was the second cash flow um, bottleneck in my, in my business. And it almost, it made things very, very difficult for about a year. Um, you know, not because wasn't bringing in money, but the cash flow situation was bad. And we were, I remember vividly uh, Christmas, Christmas 2016, we ran out of money on this development in December. And basically we had to carry on funding it um, over the Christmas period. And it was, it was at the period where we just had all the trades on site. Um, and the wage bill was seven grand a week. And me and my business partner basically had to um, find every week another seven grand for about five weeks over the Christmas period, just to keep the guys on site. Um, that's a, that's a tough position to be in. Um, when you get out the other side, it's fantastic, of course. And you know, you feel like you've achieved something pretty amazing, but not everybody, I don't think everybody would like their life to look like that. Mm. Um, and so if you, if you engineer an exit, you know, you have, um, uh, you, you have that income stream that you can go into. It makes life much easier. And then when you're, when you're out in it, my advice to people is just don't try and scale too quickly. I mean, you can scale quickly, but most people I see get into trouble is when they scale too quickly. It's what we did. It's what I did. Um, and went a bit ambitious with um, multiple projects, multiple big projects at once. Um, you don't need to do it. You don't need to scale quickly, um, depending on what you're, what you're trying to achieve. But most people, if they're just trying to get out of their job and create a lifestyle, you don't need to go all guns blazing and scale at that sort of rate. It's, it's um, interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sorry to talk over you, Harry, but I'm just, right. just sort of re reflecting that, you know, we've had exactly those situations, you know, where you've got a big project and suddenly you're quarter of a million pounds over and above what your anticipated bill was going to be. And you've got, uh, you know, you're funding in, in, in our instance, 50 to 60,000 pounds a week. 
mm. on, on the build. And you think, actually, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, corporate life is stressful. And you think it is stressful. It's really stressful. And other people are applying that stress on you. But, but now try, try doing it with your own money, you know, because that's, that's where it really feels painful. So, um, so your advice would be to, you know, it, it, engineer that exit, find a strategy that's going to work, that's actually going to create that cash flow and almost chunk it down and say, okay, I need five grand or 10 grand a month, whatever it is to replace the income. Let's do it in chunks of 500 quid at a time or a thousand pound at a time. And, 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 and that can just take some of the pain out of it. Yeah. I, I think it depends what people want to do in, in their lives and their businesses. But, but here's, here's a big mindset shift I've had recently, if, if it's all right to kind of share that. Um, and, and that's the, in, in the property world, in the wealth generation world, in personal development world, uh, we're bombarded with messages or images on social media of success and, you know, people traveling the world and, you know, flash cars and all of that sort of stuff. And, and what, I, what I really truly feel is that we, uh, a lot of people are assessing their lives in the wrong metrics these days, right? And, and people use metrics of, you know, how many cars do I have or how many holidays I've been on. And actually these, these are poor metrics to, to um, assess our success and our lives on. And, and I think before anybody starts on their own in property or any sort of business, it's like, right, what actually do I want to achieve? What do I want my life to look like? And what is actually the definition of success to, uh, to me? And when you've done that, then you can go about planning out how you're going to achieve that. Um, and I, I would say the vast majority of very successful people I've met, it's not about any sort of money. It's not about any sort of financial metric. It's about um, how they're growing in their business and how they contribute, how they contribute back. Um, and, you know, you've probably heard it, you know, or, or, or recognize it a lot that the super successful people don't shout about what they're doing and don't shout about what, what they have. So, so we are bombarded with these, these messages, which I think are, are unhelpful to, to how we should be running our businesses. Um, and, and when you know what you can, what, when you want to do, what you want to do, what you want your life to look like, then you can go about, go about creating that. But you know, all the, all the big guys, when you look at their growth, yeah, there's messages of 10 X out there, you know, Grant Cardone and all that sort of people like 10 X your business. And I get the message, but actually most big businesses are like, right, we want to 1.23 X our business this year, you know, sustainable growth. You know, if you, if you can do 20% growth a year on a business, that's going to compound over the next 10, 20 years into something amazing rather than, right, how am I going to 10 X my business in the next 12 months and then go under? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a philosophy that I've been developing over the last, last couple of years um, in, in my own business. And do you know what, as soon as you let go of that, life is a lot more fulfilled and a lot more enriched and ironically, a lot more opportunity comes up anyway. And, and on that note, looking at where your life was eight years ago and looking where it is now, Mm. Would you say that it's better than you expected, worse than you expected, just or just plain different? Um, I would say plain different. I, mm -hmm. I had, I had, do you know what? Absolutely no um, idea what life would be like. I mean, eight years ago, I was in South Africa, you know, flying flying jets over Kruger National Park. Um, life is clearly very different, very different now. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, as always, right there's. Uh, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to everything. I miss a lot of things about the military. I miss the community. I miss the camaraderie. Um, I miss, you know, the friendship circle I developed there. I miss flying airplanes. Uh, what I don't miss is being told what to do every day. You know, um, I don't miss having to shave every day because I quite, I quite like having a little bit of a beard. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I quite like being able to go on holiday 
three, four times a year um, and, you know, live in a nice house. So, it, I, but there is, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a yin and yang to everything. I think ultimately we have to be content with what we have um, and happy with, you know, the process that we're going through, not the end results. We're always looking at the horizon. Um, we're never going to get there. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think, I think the big thing that I want everybody to have is just enjoy the process that you're going through, not the end result. I think that's such an important message because like you said about social media and everything, it's so easy. We tend to put our best selves on social media. So, you know, I always put on my Instagram and Facebook like pictures of, you know, really nice cups of coffee, nice pictures of me at the beach, whatever. They don't see me sat in front of Love Island every night in my pajamas <laughs> with a glass of wine in no my hand. Do you know no what I mean? <laughs> no one's Instagramming themselves cleaning the bog, are they? No. Yeah, so, <laughs> we should do that a bit more. Real life. <laughs> nobody's instagramming that time where you got a flat tire on the side of the road <laughs> but, you know, reality tv isn't that just the most inappropriately named concept in the world reality oh yeah absolutely it's not reality tv is it it's... yeah it doesn't stop me watching it <laughs> oh don't get me wrong I'm, I'm a big fan of love island um... oh wonderful we can talk about that I've later i've never seen it i don't get it but it's it's game, isn't it? yeah. <laughs> you can stay online and chat Love Island for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> so um, I guess as we come towards the, 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 the end of this uh, um, interview, this podcast, um, Rob, you've got some really good advice for people out there. And, and one of the things I think is to, you know, you're picking up on saying, you know, what do you want your life to be like? One of the very real challenges, I think, in, in, in today's society is that actually we don't know what some we don't really know what makes us happy we've got an idea of what that might be and for a lot of people it's like oh I want to go on a holiday I want to sit on the beach you know mainly because I'm sort of unhappy with my lot now but probably we get bored of that pretty quick so got any advice on how people can actually identify what is important to them because because actually most of us we're just we're just treading water aren't we we're just kind of you know living getting through each day so we're not necessarily thinking about what i really want to do and we've never been taught to think about that i guess yeah so um uh, good question funny you asking so i've got a model that i actually use with my clients for this and um it was kind of triggered by i went to see uh, brendan bashard i don't know if you know um you know brendan bashard um i saw him a few years ago in in the states and he, he said something that really sort of resonated with me and from there, I kind of developed a model that I work with my clients. It's called the hierarchy of identity because a, a, a lot of people, motivation coaches, mindset coaches, just say, get out there and take action, right? Um, just do it or know your why. And they're all really unhelpful comments because they're just quite superficial comments. And as you say, most people go, well, I don't know what my why is. So how am I ever going to find my why? Or, you know, just do it, but just do what? And there's no motivation to go and do it. So we kind of need to understand who we are first. And it's all very internal and it's about self-awareness. And the first thing that I would say every, for everybody to do is, is sit down and go, what do you actually desire in your life? Um, and be really honest with yourself and go, you know, what does your life look like in, you know, in a perfect world? What do you want? What are you surrounded by? What are you doing? And that's the first thing because we can't, you know, we can't plot out a route unless we know that. The next thing we need to understand is what's, what actual value can we give to the world? Um, so, you know, everybody has skill sets. 
Um, everybody has um, value they can give to, to to someone, and it's about it's about understanding that, and then really focusing what you're doing on on the value you can give to the world. You know, if you're really bad at something, don't try and build a business around something you're terrible at. I know everyone says just leverage and get teams, but you, it doesn't matter. Um, the next part is what are you connected to emotionally? What's your emotional connection? Okay, and I guarantee there'll be people who are listening to this who have got into property and they're doing a strategy, and they're like, I hate this. I hate what I'm doing. You know, I remember um, I used to run a mastermind group in property and we, um, there was one guy that every month is like, I just hate what I'm doing. And it's like, he was doing rent to rent actually. It's like, so why are you doing it? He goes, well, I did a course on it. And that's not the reason to, to you know, do something for the rest of your life. So make sure what you're doing, you are connected with and you actually get out of bed in the morning and you're enjoying the process of what you're doing because otherwise you're not going to be successful. And then the next step up is who are you? What's your identity as a person? And again, I would like everybody to ask themselves, if somebody said to you right now, who are you? You know, who's Rob Stewart? Um, what would you say to them? And would it be, would it be congruent with who you are? Because I don't think people think about who they actually are, i.e. what their identity is. I used to say I'm a property person. Um, I know this is a property podcast, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't class myself as a property person identity-wise. I class myself as a, as a writer and a, uh, and a trainer. Um, and that's kind of what I do with 90% of, of my time these days. And only when you know what you're connected to and who your true identity is, then you can work out what your why is, what your purpose is and what you should be doing, you know, what your vision is into the world. So there's a bit of a stepping stone approach um, up to it. And you're not going to come to these conclusions in a 30-minute thought process right this will often take years years of experience before you really understand what you're connected to what you want to do and who you are but i would just ask everybody to spend a little bit of time self-reflecting and ask you know are you on the right route are you doing what you're connected to and are you being true to yourself and that that's the best advice i think i could give anybody it, yeah, I think it's really wonderful advice. It's brilliant <laughs> advice, isn't it? And, you know, uh, I, I'm never one that, uh, for the sort of, you know, the, the hippy dippy stuff at all. That's just not me. But what I do absolutely recognise and what you're saying is that, you know, we, we have to understand what we enjoy doing and what we're good at and who we are as people. Because uh, if you don't have value, if you don't give value to, to some, somebody, you don't have a business because business is always about adding value in some way isn't it yeah. you know no yes. what we're doing if we're you know, if we love the bricks and mortar bit uh you know that's that's great if we like connecting other people and teams together that that has a massive value as well um and i don't know if you uh, see this as well is one of the things when people seem to start in property is they they try and do everything yeah. they've got and you to a degree you have to be don't you? you have to be a jack of all trades trying to bring it all together but have you found that you were in the early days, you were doing all, all of that, but you've managed to sort of niche down and say, well, this is the bit that's me. This is the bit that I'm good at. Absolutely. I did absolutely everything. And you, you, you probably can't see it on there, but I, I, I remember taking the top of my thumb off um, when I was learning to do plumbing. And, um, you know, I had a, a Stanley knife through a push fit uh, thing and took half my thumb off. And I was driving around Birkenhead, which I was investing, going, I have no idea where a local hospital is, and just wrapped it in a plastic bag and had blood pooling everywhere. And um, I thought, you know, this is probably not the way to do things. So <laughs> that's when I started growing a team. But even, I, I think, and here's kind of my, I guess, my second bit of advice. And this is for when people are actually getting some traction. And I think when people get traction in business, they go, they start to think they're superhuman and start to do everything again and multiple businesses. Uh, and you see all these people have got five, six, seven, eight different businesses and they're just stretched so thin and they're not really um, blitzing everybody, blitzing any of them. And look, you only need one successful business to create a lasting legacy on this world. You don't need 10. Um, and the minute that I realized that and simplified my own business structure, and I think 
three, two and a half, three years ago, had something like five, six businesses and closed down all of them other than two. Um, one being the trading business and one being the, um, uh, the, the property investment um, slash development business. And since then, everything has, has literally just skyrocketed without much effort, if I'm brutally honest. Um, and when you're doing too much, you, you, you're pushing, you know, you're pushing yourself through treacle every day just to just to tread water. Why do you think we do it then? Why do you think that happens? Because I recognize it, you know, in myself and, you know, in, in loads of other people I know. Do you think it's because we've we've done what we're doing for a while and we get bored of that bit and we think we've got some skills, we can do something else now, add value somewhere else. And which seems natural, doesn't it? To That seems a sort of natural growth as a person to say, well, I'll take on another challenge. But I totally recognize the being stretched thin bit. And one of the, the, the statements I always use is, it always feels like I'm doing every area of my life just not that brilliantly. You know, like I'm never sort of nailing my time with the kids or, you know, being a husband or running the business or looking after the portfolio or whatever. So um, it, it's the entrepreneur's curse. Okay. Um, it's the entrepreneur's curse. And as, a, as an entrepreneur, you see opportunity. And the problem is a lot of entrepreneurs are starters and not finishers. And they see opportunity and they go, I can make some money there or add value there and they go into it and they do it and they, and then they do that for a year and they go, Oh, I can do that. And there's value there. Or somebody's brought me an opportunity. I'm going to jump into that opportunity. Um, and the real key is saying no. I know it says cliche. Everybody's probably heard this before, but the real key to success is learning to say no, um, to, to opportunity and to stand by your own values. And, you know, uh, people very rarely achieve anything big in a year, but three, five years down the line, if you just focus on something consistently, you'll just see incredible results. Okay, brilliant. And to sort of wrap up the interview, um, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way uh, to, you know, chat to chat more about what your journey, what, what you've done, uh, they want to find out, you know, yeah, I, I, I guess probably um, I always say like like Facebook is the best way to do it because I, I you know uh, build my own brand on Facebook. So um, uh, just Facebook Rob Stewart or Robert Stewart, which is the sort of the business page of it. Um, or if you want to come and hang out in a group, I've got a group called the Expert Asset Builders. Um, so feel free to uh, to type that in and apply to uh, to join the group, and you know we can network and hang out there for a bit. Fantastic, thank you. Okay. Brilliant. We've got so much more from this interview than I just imagined. You just never know. Yeah really which direction it's going to go in so it's been it's been a genuinely brilliant one this yeah, one i think i could actually um talk to you all day but not not just about love island but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um i have to go off on holiday in half an hour so <laughs> enjoy your holiday <laughs> i'm being very smug are you going on love island <laughs> oh i wish i was going oh, on okay. love island <laughs> maybe next year maybe, that's maybe, maybe next year yeah oh, okay rob it's been amazing connecting with you and um you know we look forward to catching catching up with you again on future podcasts and future articles in the magazine so thank you for your time and uh we can create a podcast in the magazine without people like yourselves sharing their very real experiences and often raw experiences of life in property and business so massive thanks for much absolutely thank you very much Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can go to yourpropertynetwork.co.uk forward slash stuff. You can download the article that we create from the podcast so you can see all of the case study pictures, all the uh, financials um, and a bit more information uh, in there as well. And there's loads of other useful things to download uh, on that web page as well. And don't forget to rate, comment and subscribe to our podcast.